Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. We here at GCA are a Reformed church. Turn to Ezekiel 12, and we will get there eventually, but the reason that I bring up the fact that we are Reformed is that there are certain biblical principles that we just hold to, that within Reformed circles we all agree with when we talk about TULIP, when we talk about the five basic doctrines of grace. It begins with the concept that man is what we call totally depraved. And we always throw in the caveat, by totally depraved, we don't mean as bad as people could be, but what we mean by it is that every part of man, body, soul, and spirit, has been affected by the fall, and that we are sinful at our base, and that is only God's grace that can solve our deep-rooted sin problem. The common Arminian thinking on that is that men are inherently good and that when they sin or fall or act like humans, that that is somehow an aberration. That people are basically fundamentally good. That's the way the world thinks. People are fundamentally good. And if somebody opens fire on a concert in Las Vegas, that that's, that's weird, that's odd, that's an aberration. He's sick. Well, we look at the world and we see constant evidence of the fact that mankind is fallen, that we are depraved, that we are sinful. And I think it's kind of a delightful little aberration when I see people do good things, when I see people actually praise God or people actually respond to the gospel or care for somebody else or show some kind of long-suffering and patience. That's the actual aberration because we are essentially egocentric and depraved. That's what the Bible says over and over again. And tonight in Ezekiel 12, we're going to bump into again one of these real pervasive, constant, repeated themes that are in the Bible. And that theme is that God has given human beings eyes and ears, physical eyes and ears, they can hear things, they can see things, but they can't perceive things. They don't understand things. And I'm going to show you that this is truly a pervasive thought. Now, in every instance that we're going to look at tonight, it is God speaking of Israel, that it's Israel that cannot perceive that it's actually God that's bringing about the horrors in their life at that time or taking them into the Babylonian captivity or, or getting them out of their land or stopping their worship in Jerusalem. It's actually God who's responsible for all that. But they don't get it. They don't perceive it. The common thinking at this point, as Ezekiel's writing, is that the people who were taken out during the first and second deportations into Babylon those were the ones who God was judging, but the ones who got to stay in Jerusalem, they were thinking, well, we're safe. We're behind the walls. We're going to be fine. And Ezekiel is going to point out tonight that they are also under judgment because they are going to be exported out of their land and their own king, who they trust in, Zedekiah, who they believe they're going to live under the shadow of. That's the language that Jeremiah uses in Lamentations, that they're going to live under the shadow of the king that God gave them. Even Zedekiah is going to be taken into bondage in Babylon, and he's going to be blinded, all of which is prefigured and prophesied in Ezekiel 12. But right at the beginning of Ezekiel 12, God yet again says, I give them eyes, and they don't see, and I give them ears, and they don't hear, and I think this doesn't just have to do with Israel. I think this has to do with mankind in their natural state. If it's just Israel we're talking about, then you have to explain when or where God ever put them in a state of not being able to understand, not being able to perceive, being able to see, being able to hear, but not being able to comprehend what's happening to them. 
there's no point at which God does that to them. He just meets them in their natural state, and their natural state is that they are incapable, that they are fallen, that they are unable to understand the things of God. I argue, as a Reformed preacher, I argue that that is the natural state of all human beings, that human beings simply cannot understand the things of God. They are incapable. And because human beings are incapable, they can't read the Word of God and understand it. They can't hear the preachment of God's Word and comprehend it. All they can see, all they can hear are the natural things they can see and hear. And so they fill their eyes with every kind of amusement and every kind of inconsequential debris. They fill their ears with everything they can hear that just satisfies their time. But they can't think about the deeper things, the eternal things, the spiritual things. And even when they do, they do it in a very haphazard and lighthearted fashion. To really understand the God of the Bible, to really comprehend the God of the Bible, means that you comprehend that God knew Israel was going to be like this. And he even says to them at the beginning of his relationship with them, when he forms a covenant with them through Moses, he even explains to Moses, this is what they're like. And yet this is the same God who says, I'm going to take out their stony heart and give them a heart of flesh. I'm going to put my spirit inside them and they will be my people and I will be their God. He's going to do that. And yet he hasn't. Yet he intends to, declares that he's going to, but he doesn't. He leaves these people in that state of not being able to comprehend him. And yet he sends them prophets and he sends them his word and he sends them everything they require in order to understand the one thing he withholds from them is his spirit his enlightenment that heart of flesh that ability to understand and unless God enlightens you everything I've just said sounds like gibberish it sounds unfair it sounds like how can God be like that how can God know that these are the people he's chosen these are the people he's loved And yet these people can't see and can't hear, and he has the ability to give them the seeing and the hearing and the comprehension. And he says he's going to do it, but he doesn't do it for them and holds them guilty for not understanding. Wow, what do you do with a God like that? You have to say, well, that's a sovereign God. That's a God who does what he wants for his own purposes so that all the glory comes back to him And so that everybody who's saved has to say it's all of God. It can't be any part of the individual. So while God obviously has a divine plan in everything he is doing, we're going to see in Ezekiel 12 tonight that God is yet again going to say, you don't see, you don't hear, you don't perceive, you don't get it. But I'm going to send Ezekiel to give you examples yet again, to prophesy against you yet again. I'm even going to declare what's going to happen. That king that you have so much confidence in, I'm going to bring to Babylon and I'm going to blind him. And though he's going to die in Babylon, he's never going to see Babylon. God prophesies all of that and says, and then you're going to know that I'm God. He doesn't enlighten them. He doesn't give them eyes to see or ears to hear. He just demonstrates his judgment against them for the fact that they don't see and they don't hear. So this is an absolutely sovereign God who can act any way he pleases to act and who the world, looking at his actions, would say, that's not fair. That's not right. That's not just. And yet it's the only God you find in the Bible, which is why so much of modern so-called Christianity tries real hard to make God more acceptable and invent a God who is more like human beings, who is more fair, who is more loving and kind, and who wants everybody to have a fair shot. You don't find that God in the Bible, but religion will tell you that that kind of God is the God of the Bible, is the God of heaven, because people want God to be like that. But if you stand toe-to-toe with the Bible and accept what the Bible says and understand God according to what he says he's like, then you have to accept 
that he is a God who can leave people in their darkness, in their blindness, in their incapability and lack of comprehension, and hold them guilty for not understanding. Mm -hmm. And you can't get away from that kind of God. Because when you die, when you leave this planet, that's the God you meet. Not that one you like, that big marshmallow God, that God of your imagination, that God who loves everybody, is like a big grandpa sitting in a comfy chair up in heaven, just loves everybody. Hey, you tried, give you some noogies, bring you on in. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is absolutely righteous, absolutely holy, absolutely just, and he can do absolutely anything he wants. So you got to deal with that. So, Ezekiel chapter 12, starting at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, you live in the midst of a rebellious house. Important there, he's not saying you live in the midst of bricks and mortar that are rebelling against you. He's talking about the house of Israel, the clan of Israel. You live in the midst of a rebellious house who have eyes to see, but do not see. Ears to hear, but they do not hear, for they are a rebellious house. So how does God see Israel, see mankind generally in their incapability? He recognizes that they can't see and they can't hear, and yet he holds them guilty for their rebellion for not doing the things of God that God requires of them, even though they can't comprehend it. Even though they don't get what God is saying, even though they don't understand the importance of the Sabbaths, which is the reason that they're out of their land. They didn't let the land lay fallow every seven years during its Sabbaths. So God drives them out of the land so the land can keep its Sabbaths. Why would they act like that? Well, it's because they don't understand. But God doesn't say, oh, those poor people, they just don't understand. He says they're rebels because they're not doing things my way. <coughs> Son of man, you live in the midst of a rebellious house who have eyes to see but do not see. They have ears to hear but they do not hear for they are a rebellious House. Now, I said to you that this is thematic. This is something that comes up repeatedly in the Bible. So we're going to look at some of those examples because it just keeps coming up. Deuteronomy 29. Turn there. Keep your finger in Ezekiel. Turn back to Deuteronomy. This is back when God is forming a covenant with Israel. He is establishing them as his chosen people. He is establishing himself as their God, and they are to be a unique and distinct people on the planet. Deuteronomy 29. Deuteronomy 29, verse 2. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all the servants and to all his land. And you've seen the great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs and those wonders. Yet to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. Do you understand what he's saying? When you were in Egypt, you saw the plagues. You saw the frogs, you saw the lice, you saw the darkness, you saw the river Nile turn to blood. You know the plagues. In fact, when God put three days of darkness on Egypt, he made it light in Goshen where you were. You've seen these signs, these miracles. You've seen the way you were delivered out of Egypt. You saw the Red Sea part. You saw yourself walk over on dry land. You saw all of that, and yet you don't get it. Why don't you get it? Moses says, because to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. Which means that you can yank out miracle after miracle, sign after sign, wonder after wonder, enough that any logical person should be convinced, enough that any rational thinking human should be convinced 
that this is miraculous, this is the work of God, and that they should come running to God, but they don't believe because God doesn't give them the heart to believe. In my life, I've never seen a sea part. Anybody here seen that? I've never seen a plague of frogs. Anybody? Anybody? Anyone? No. Three days of absolute darkness, so dark that it consumed the light of a torch, and, and yet there's light in Goshen. Anybody seen anything like that? No. The Israelites saw it, and unless God gave them the heart to perceive it, they still didn't get it. They saw everything that God did to Egypt, how he punished them, and how he delivered Israel, and yet they still didn't understand. If they did understand, they wouldn't be in Babylon now. They wouldn't be under punishment now. They'd have kept the worship of God exactly the way the worship of God is spelled out. They'd have done everything God required of them because they understood. But at the beginning of God's relationship with them, he says, they're not going to understand it. And Moses declares it to them. Yet to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandals have not worn out on your foot. You have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine, nor strong drink, in order that you might know that I am the Lord your God. When you reach this place, Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out to meet us for battle, but we defeated them, and we took their land. And we gave it as an inheritance to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of the Manassites. So keep the words of this covenant to do them so that you may prosper in all you do. You stand today, all of you, before the Lord your God, your chiefs, your tribes, your elders, and your officers, even all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the alien who is within your camp from the one who chops the wood to the one who draws water, that you may enter into covenant with the Lord your God and into his oath, which the Lord your God is making with you today, in order that he may establish you today as his people, that he may be your God, just as he spoke to you and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God is declaring his absolute faithfulness. I'm making a covenant with you. You're going to be my people. You're a separate, distinct people. And yet, despite that, you're not going to comprehend it. So I think here's a simple question. Where does God-type comprehension come from? It has to come from God. It can't come from anywhere else. And people like to think, well, you know, God, if I believe in God, I'm really doing God a favor. You know, if I, gee, I, I've chosen God. God I'm going to make you my God. And uh, Without comprehending that the relationship from first to last is all of God. It's God who starts the relationship, who makes the covenant, who calls his people, who redeemed his people, who did wonders for his people. And that's the same God who has to give his people the comprehension to understand who he is as God. If he doesn't, they're not going to understand. Which is, again, why I keep saying over and over, in agreement with all the prophets of Israel, that one day God is going to do that for Israel. On a national basis, he's going to make sure that they look on him whom they have pierced and weep like one weeps over her only child because they're finally going to have comprehension of what they did and who he is. In the great big picture... Why doesn't God give them comprehension right from the beginning? Why doesn't he give them eyes to see and ears to hear right from the start? Well, because then they would never kill the Messiah. And if they don't kill the Messiah, then there's no redemption for anybody. So God knows what he's doing, but I'm just trying to drive home the point that it is God who reveals himself, but it is also God who gives you the comprehension to understand the revelation. He can reveal himself in miracles, in wonders, and you're not going to get it until he reveals it to you. Turn to Isaiah 6 for a moment. I'll show you a real familiar passage. 
you should all know Isaiah 6. Begins within the year that King Uzziah died. Turn to Isaiah 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they flew. And one called out to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. Now I have to pause there for once, for one moment, and say, I've heard this mispreached constantly in my life. Jeff is smirking and nodding. Because how often have you heard people say that this is a positive thing that's happening here? God says, who am I going to send? And Isaiah says, me, send me. And then they say something like, when God calls you, you, you go, you say, here, send me, God, send me. They make some positive message out of it. Here's what he's told to go tell Israel. It's a really negative thing. When he says, here am I, send me. God says, okay, I'm going to send you to tell Israel really bad news. Verse 9, and he said, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. Do you hear what Isaiah is being told to do? Go and say to these people, you don't understand the things of God. And it's God that's keeping you from that. Because if you did understand, you would return to God and God would heal you. And God doesn't want to do that right now. That's a really sovereign God. That's the message from Isaiah. Yet again, the dull ears, the dim eyes, the inability to see, the inability to hear, to understand, to comprehend. And it's all to do with God keeping these people in that perpetual state of not understanding what he's about. Turn to Jeremiah 5. Jeremiah is a contemporary of Ezekiel. He's writing and prophesying to the same basic group of people. And so Jeremiah and Ezekiel say many of the same things. Jeremiah 5, I'm going to start at verse 14. Still hear pages flipping. Jeremiah 5, starting at verse 14. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, Behold, I am making my words in your mouth fire, and these people wood, and it will consume them. Behold, I am bringing a nation against you from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open grave. All of them are mighty men. They will devour your harvest and your food. They will devour your sons and your daughters. They will devour your flocks and your herds. They will devour your vines and your fig trees. They will demolish with the sword your fortified cities in which you trust. 
And yet, even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not make you a complete destruction. It shall come about when they say, why has the Lord our God done all these things to us? Then you shall say to them, as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you will serve strangers in the land that is not yours. Declare this to the house of Jacob and proclaim it in Judah, saying, Now hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble at my presence? For I have placed the sand as a boundary for the sea, an eternal decree, so it cannot cross over it. Though the waves toss, they will not prevail. Though they roar, they cannot cross over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and departed. They do not say in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God, who gives rain in its season, both the autumn rain and the spring rain, who keeps for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these away, and your sins have withheld good from you. Think about that for a moment. Think about what God is saying through Jeremiah. You don't see, you don't understand, you don't perceive. I have the ability to give you a new heart and put my spirit within you so that you do understand and you do perceive. I'm not going to give that to you so that you do not perceive. So I'm going to take you into Babylon and they're going to destroy you. I'm not going to make an utter end of you. I'm going to keep a remnant, but I'm going to take you into Babylon. They are going to destroy you. They're archers and they're swordsmen and, and they're going to eat all the good of the produce of your land and you're going to starve. You're going to be taken into bondage. And through all of that, I'm doing it because of your iniquities that are the cause for me doing this to you and because of your sins, and that's why I'm withholding good from you. This is the same God who can keep them from that sinful rebellion. This is the same God who declares that he's going to keep them from this kind of sinful rebellion. But he's the same God who's holding them guilty for their sinful rebellion. Because even though he chose them and made a covenant with them and redeemed them and brought them into their land, he still has not given them the enlightenment to understand and perceive what's happening. Does your theology fit well with a God like that? Does your comprehension of God embrace a God who's like that? But he had told them before they went in there what would happen if they didn't obey. That's right. So it's just coming to pass. It's coming to pass. He's keeping his word. He is faithful. He said, this is what's going to happen. If you don't do what I say, then he didn't give them the ability to understand or comprehend. Therefore, they rebelled and didn't do what he said. And he faithfully is pouring out judgment on them, just like he said he was going to. Isn't that remarkable? Mm -hmm. Turn to Matthew. Go into the New Testament. Because this idea of the Israelites not being able to understand, not being able to comprehend, shows up several times, as we've seen here in the Old Testament. It's a pervasive concept in God dealing with Israel that they don't get it, they don't comprehend. And so God sends Jesus to the planet, his own son. He's going to be the prophet to Israel, to Judah. And he comes among his own, and even his own don't understand, don't comprehend. His own receive him not. So now Jesus is on the planet, the ultimate teacher, the one who knows God intimately, the one who understands heaven like it's his living room, the one who can tell us things that we've been dying to know. He comes to the planet, and when he's talking to Israel, who don't understand, who don't comprehend, when he's talking to them, he starts speaking to them in parables. And so, starting in chapter 13 of Matthew, starting at verse 10, Matthew 13, 10, the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Perfectly good question. Why aren't you just clear? 
Why don't you just tell them what you want to say? Why are you cloaking things in parables that people have to figure out? You know these folks aren't real bright to start with. <laughs> and the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered them, see if this sounds familiar. To you, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. To you, it's been granted to know. To you, it's been granted to understand. Where did the understanding come from? God. From God. To you, it's been granted to know. But to them, it has not been granted. The reason they don't understand is because God did not grant them the ability to comprehend. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have in abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled. In other words, the inability of people to understand Jesus, to comprehend the wisdom of the Son of God on the planet, the reason they don't understand it is to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah. It's already predicted that they're not going to get it. So they're not going to get it because sovereign God's making sure that they don't get it because he's already said it and therefore it already has to happen. He's already declared it about them all the way back in Deuteronomy when he brought them out of Egypt. This is a continual state that God is keeping Israel in. Verse 14, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. We read that out of Isaiah. That's exactly what God said. If they understood, they'd come back to me, and then I would heal their nation. Which, may I say also, since this is the same Isaiah who says, with his stripes we are healed, and the church loves to quote that out of context and say, because Jesus suffered, that means that we're going to get healed of every disease we've ever had if we just name it and claim it and just believe it and have enough faith and that's not what Isaiah is talking about. He's talking about the healing of the nation. He's talking about the destruction of the nation and the healing of the nation. And with the stripes of Christ, the nation of Israel is healed. That's why the promise of restoration continues to exist. So back in Isaiah, he said, if they understood with their heart, then they would return and I would heal them. So verse 16, Jesus says, but blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see. And they desired to hear what you hear and they did not hear. So again, it is God who is making sure that the people of Israel aren't comprehending what he's doing, what he's saying, how he's acting. He's holding them guilty. He's taking them into the Babylonian captivity. And then he's going to start demonstrating that through his judgments, he is still God who is faithfully doing exactly what he said he's going to do. As Gladys pointed out, God said, if you don't do it my way, I'm going to punish you. And now they're not doing it his way, and he's punishing them. And they're not doing it his way because he didn't give them the ability to do it. He didn't give them the ability to comprehend it and understand it. And that's hard for us to wrap our little pea brains around. But it's what the Bible says. One more. Turn to Mark 8. Because this is, again, Jesus demonstrating. He's doing these miracles. And then he says to his disciples, how can you not understand? How can you still not get it? How can, you, how can you not know fully who I am yet? Why are you asking me dumb questions? And he's going to say, is it because you still don't see and don't hear? 
he said to them, you've been given the ability to hear and understand, but even they, in their human form, in their fleshly beings, they still have difficulty comprehending Jesus. Mark 8, starting at verse 11. The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, why does this generation seek for a sign? By the way, did Israel have plenty of signs? Yes. Lots of signs. Go through the Red Sea, frogs, river of blood, all that into the land that you were promised, defeating giants, defeating the kings that had that land, and I gave you that land. Bread from heaven. Your clothes didn't wear out. Your shoes didn't wear out. They had plenty of signs. Did they comprehend? No. No. So Jesus, in continuation with everything else we see in the Old Testament, declares a sign's not going to get it. You keep wanting a sign, but you're not going to get it just because you get a sign. You're not going to understand. You're not going to comprehend just because I give you a sign. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. And they, the disciples, had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no physical bread to eat. And Jesus Aware of this, apparently aware of the conversation, the debate that they're having, Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Okay, so why do people not hear and not see and not understand? Because they have a hardened heart. God has to take out that stony heart. He has to give you a heart of flesh. He has to give you the spirit of comprehension and understanding. He has to make that change, which we all can say gladly, we've had. The born-again experience is that all things become new, and we have the comprehension built into us because of the Spirit of God that takes up habitation in us so that we're able to read the Word of God, hear the Word of God, ingest the Word of God, and do it with comprehension. But Jesus said, how is it that you don't understand? So here's his example. It's a brilliant example. Verse 18. Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke up the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces have you picked up? And they said, 12. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying, do you not yet understand? So they're arguing about, we've come across the sea and we don't have any bread. He's saying, who are you with? Don't you think I can handle the bread thing? Don't you remember me feeding the 5,000 and the 4,000? And even then, how much did you pick up? How much excess was there? How much extra was there? I'm the one who did those miracles. How do you not remember that I just did that? How is it that when I say to you, Beware of the bread of Herod and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. How is it that you think I'm talking about wonder bread? How is it that you think I'm talking about food? I can handle the food thing. I can make bread out of stones. You're not going to starve. You're with me. How is it that you don't comprehend? 
And in that context, with that example, with those signs, those miraculous, wonderful signs that they were part of, that they took up the bread and the fish, they know the miracles he did, and even then, they don't get it. And that's just our natural state. How often does Jesus say, fret not, it's me. Anybody lately worried about anything? Yeah, all of us, constantly. Anybody in the room lately found yourself questioning whether God's going to be truly faithful to you? You've looked around at your own circumstances, and you've said to yourself, where's God in this? How can this be? Well, that's because you've redefined God as a God who ought to act the way you think he ought to act. That's not the way God is. God who knows everything he's doing from the end to the beginning and knows all the intimate details is bringing these things into your life on purpose to work his ultimate plan because that's what he did with Israel for 1,400 years plus. I would say even for the last 2,000 years, 3,400 years plus. He's given them eyes, but they don't see ears but they don't hear they don't comprehend it and he's held them guilty for not understanding it while he's promised them that they're going to understand it and he's going to enlighten them and he's going to make them a great nation and he's going to return them to Jerusalem and he's going to have David's greater son sitting on the throne and all the nations of the earth are going to flow to them and then they're going to know that he's God and they are his people but between then, back in Deuteronomy, when he first said, you, you don't understand. And until the time when they do understand, that's human history. That's all of human history in there between. And God has kept them in that state of not comprehending, not understanding. It's why the Jews to this day continue to debate whether Jesus actually was Messiah. It's why they continue to not comprehend what's written in the New Testament. And it's why human beings still don't get the things of God. And you can stand and look people in the eye and say, this is what the Bible says. These are the very words of life. And you can say it to them and you can tell that brain death sets in. They have no comprehension of what you're saying. They don't get it. And they'll argue with you. They'll fight with you. They'll debate you on Facebook. They'll tell you over and over that you don't get when in fact they, they don't get it because God has not enlightened them or given them the ability to get it. Okay, so that was my introduction. We are now in Ezekiel 12. Yes, sir. Just comment. Probably been 35 years or more that there was a bunch of news that somebody had discovered the Ark of the Covenant yeah. in Turkey. And they had pictures and everything, but the Turkish government wouldn't let them go back. Ron Wyatt, right? I don't remember. I think that's the name of the guy who claimed that. Go ahead. At any rate, my father made the comment that they will never find the Ark of the Covenant because if they do, that will be proof positive that the Bible is true and everybody would become a believer. And I thought to myself, okay, do you not understand that if it is removed from the mountain, assuming it hasn't disintegrated, but if you found it, removed it, put it in the Metropolitan Museum of Natural History in New York City, people still would not believe the Bible. Right. Absolutely. Because then they submit to the God who wrote the Bible. Who they don't have the ability to submit to. Exactly. Yeah. Look. Look. That was my opening. Yeah. Look. And see. And see. And perceive. Look, Jesus himself said, when giving the story about Lazarus and the rich man, the rich man is in the flames of torment, and he says... You know, Father Abraham, just send Lazarus back to tell my brothers not to come here. And his argument is, if somebody comes back from the dead, then they'll believe. And Jesus concludes, even if someone comes back from the dead, they won't believe. They have Moses and the prophets. 
they didn't believe Moses and the prophets, so they're not going to believe even if somebody comes back from the dead. So what's the one sign that Jesus agreed to give the Israelites? He said no sign's going to be given to them except the sign of Jonah. Jonah was three days, three nights in the belly of the great fish. Son of man, three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. That's the only sign you're going to get. So three days, three nights later, he's up. He's up from the dead. There it is, the sign. There's no greater sign than that. That sign. Did that make them believe? No. No, they went to work immediately fabricating a story for why the grave was empty and the body was gone. Multiple stories. Because the one thing they couldn't do was believe, comprehend, understand what God was doing. And I argue, as I think all Reformed folk do, I argue that that's the natural state of human beings. It's not just limited to Israel. Human beings cannot comprehend the things of God unless God explains it to them. Which he does in the Bible, and they won't read the Bible. But he's put it right in front of them. Therefore, he can hold them responsible for their own sin and rebellion because he's given them his word, which they ignored. That's a sovereign God. We're back in Ezekiel 12. I don't know if we'll get through the chapter or not, but well, let's just start at verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, you live in the midst of a rebellious house who have eyes to see but do not see, ears to hear but do not hear, for they are a rebellious house. Therefore, son of man, this is what he's going to tell Ezekiel to do, prepare for yourself baggage for exile and go into exile by day in their sight. Baggage for exile basically means if you're going into exile, you take everything you can carry on your back. You take food, you take clothes, you take whatever small furniture or personal belongings you can take, whatever you can fit into a pack that you can put on your back and take with you because you're not coming home again. So you have to take the baggage of exile with you. So he says, prepare for yourself the baggage of exile. Now remember the people who are in Jerusalem think they're okay. They think they're safe. They think the two deportations have happened. And so those people have gone into Babylon, but we're safe. We're behind the walls here in Jerusalem, so we're going to be okay. This is the exile that he's now predicting. Zedekiah the king is still in Jerusalem. He's still ruling over them, thinking that he's going to be able to sort of hold the fort. But he's going to demonstrate that God is going to take all of Jerusalem into exile Prepare for yourself baggage for exile and go into exile by day in their sight. Even go into exile from your place to another place in their sight. Perhaps they will understand, though they are rebellious people. So what's God doing? He's giving them a demonstration, a visual aid. This is what I'm going to do for you. If you won't understand my words... If you won't listen to the words of my prophets, if you won't hear what I'm speaking, I'm giving you visual aids. This is what's going to happen. And bring your baggage, verse 4, and bring your baggage out by day in their sight as baggage for exile. And then you will go out at evening in their sight as those that are going into exile. Dig a hole through the wall in their sight and go out through it. So when you're preparing your stuff to take into exile... You have to dig a hole through the wall of your house. So dig a wall through your house, make your baggage for exile, carry it out during the day in front of them, broad daylight so they see it, and then continue it on into the night, into the evening, so that they see you in exile through the wall in your house. Dig a hole in their sight and go out through it. Load the baggage on your shoulder in their sight, and carry it out in the dark. You will cover your face so that you cannot see the land, for I have set you as a sign to the house of Israel. And I did so as I had been commanded by day. I brought out my baggage like the baggage of exile. Then in the evening I dug through the wall with my hands, and I went out in the dark, and I carried the baggage on my shoulder in their sight." And in the morning, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, has not the house of Israel, the rebellious house, said to you, what are you doing? 
Say to them, thus says the Lord your God, this burden or this vision concerns the prince of Jerusalem, that's Zedekiah the king, as well as all the house of Israel who are in Jerusalem. So that's who this entire imagery, this entire analogy, this whole demonstration, this burden that I'm showing you has to do with Zedekiah and the people still in Jerusalem. Say, verse 11, say, I am a sign to you. As I have done, so it will be done to them. They will go into exile, into captivity. And the prince who is among them will load his baggage on his shoulder in the dark and go out. And they will dig a hole through the wall to bring it out. And he will cover his face so that he cannot see the land with his eyes. And I shall also spread my net over him. And he will be caught in my snare. And I shall bring him to Babylon in the land of the Chaldeans. Yet he will not see it, though he will die there. Okay, that seems kind of cryptic. Okay, the king is going to go out during the dark. He's going to go through a hole in the wall. And then he's going to be captured and he's going to be taken into Babylon. And he's going to die in Babylon. He's going to live out his life in Babylon, but he's never going to see Babylon. You don't need to turn there, but let me just read a little bit to you from 2 Kings 25, starting right at verse 1. Now in the ninth year of his reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came. He and all his army against Jerusalem. They camped against it and built a siege wall around it. So the city was under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then the city was broken into, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls beside the king's garden, though the Chaldeans were all around the city. And they went by the way of the Arabah, but the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him to the king of Babylon at Riblah, not at Babylon. And he, the king of Babylon, passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, then put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with bronze fetters and then brought him to Babylon. That's what happened. He was blinded, then taken to Babylon. He died in Babylon, but he never saw Babylon, exactly as was prophesied by Ezekiel. There's a longer version of the same story in Jeremiah 52, and that's why some folks, I think, rightfully argue that Jeremiah wrote First uh, and Second Kings. I'm going to read the longer account just because some of the details are really helpful and interesting. Jeremiah 52, starting at verse 1, says, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Hamatal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, like all that Jehoiakim had done. For through the anger of the Lord, this came about in Jerusalem and Judah until he cast them out of his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Now it came about in the ninth year of his reign on the tenth day of the tenth month that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, he and all his army, against Jerusalem, camped against it, and built a siege wall around it. So the city was under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then the city was broken into, and all the men of war fled and went from the city at night by the way of the gate between the two walls which was in the king's gardens, though the Chaldeans were all around the city. And they went by way of the Arabah, but the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, 
and he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and he also slaughtered all the princes of Judah in Riblah. Then he blinded the eyes of Zedekiah. And the king of Babylon bound him in bronze fetters and brought him to Babylon and put him in prison until the day of his death. So what did Ezekiel say? He said, Ezekiel 12.10, say to them, thus says the Lord God, this burden concerns the prince of Jerusalem, as well as all the house of Israel who are in it. Say, I am assigned to you. As I have done, so it will be done to them. They will go into exile, into captivity, and the prince who is among them will load his baggage on his shoulder in the dark and go out. What did we see? That's exactly what he did. He escaped in the night. They will dig a hole through the wall and bring it out. He will cover his face so that he cannot see the land with his eyes. I shall also spread my net over him and he shall be caught in my snare. In other words, even though the king Zedekiah is running in the dark with his face covered so that it's not obvious that he's the king, he's just one of the people fleeing, even though he's attempting to hide, he can't hide from God. God says, I'm going to catch him. I'm going to spread my net over him. I'm going to make sure he gets caught in my snare. Now, did God go catch him? No, the Babylonians captured him. The Chaldeans got him and took him to the king of Babylon. But God takes credit for it. God says, I did that. I caught him in my snare. Why? Because he did evil in my sight. I will catch him in my snare. I will bring him into Babylon in the land of the Chaldeans. Yet he will not see it, though he will die there. And I shall scatter to every wind all those who are around him, his helpers and his troops, and I shall draw out a sword after them. So they will know that I am the Lord when I scatter them among the nations and spread them among the countries. But I shall spare a few of them from the sword, the famine, the pestilence, that they may tell all their abominations among the nations where they go and may know that I am the Lord. So now he's talking about the remnant. The remnant's going to admit their guilt. They're going to confess their guilt. And they're going to confess their guilt in all the lands, all the nations where God's going to drive them. Which means that God knows the nations he has driven them into. He knows where they are. He knows how to regather them. He knows how to call them back. He says repeatedly through Jeremiah and through Ezekiel, I know where I've driven you among the Gentiles, and I'm going to go get you. I'm going to bring you back to your own land. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, eat your bread with trembling and drink your water with quivering and anxiety. And then say to the people of the land, Thus says the Lord God concerning the inhabitants of Jerusalem in the land of Israel. They will eat their bread with anxiety and drink their water with horror because their land will be stripped of its fullness on account of the violence of all who live in it. And the inhabited cities will be laid waste and the land will be a desolation so you will know that I am the Lord. Son of man, what is this proverb you people have concerning the land of Israel saying the days are long and every vision fails? Understand what God is saying here. He's been predicting the downfall of Jerusalem through multiple prophets for many years. So long, in fact, that it's become like a catchphrase in Israel, like a proverb where they say, the days are long and every vision fails. You know, we've heard these prophecies. We've heard that God is going to punish Jerusalem and drive Israel out. We've heard the prophets say that, but it's been a long time. Does that sound familiar? Mm -hmm. Sounds like Peter saying there are going to be some scoffers in the last day who are going to say, where is the promise of his return? Because ever since the fathers fell asleep, it all just continues the same old way. It just goes on and on. And human beings, being human beings, 
think that just because God hasn't acted yet, that God's not going to act. You know, I know that he said he's going to come back and get the church, but he hasn't yet. He's probably not going to, certainly not in my lifetime. So why do I have to worry about it? I know that God said there's going to be judgment, but I'm not speaking personally right here. I'm speaking, I'm speaking as the devil's advocate right now. You know, I know all those prophecies about the judgment of God, but it hasn't happened yet, and I've done all kinds of evil, and God hasn't judged me. Nothing bad happened to me. I'm still well-fed and rich and getting along well in my life. Where is this God you speak of? Okay, well, that's what was happening in Jerusalem. That's what was happening in Israel. And God says, what is this proverb you have where you say the days are long and every vision fails? How dare you say that about me? Therefore, say to them, verse 23... Thus says the Lord God, I will make this proverb cease so that they will no longer use it as a proverb in Israel, but tell them the days draw near as well as the fulfillment of every vision. For there will no longer be any false vision or flattering divinations within the house of Israel. For I, the Lord, shall speak and whatever word I speak will be performed. You got that? I, the Lord, will speak, and whatever the Lord speaks will be performed. And we have a long, rich history of God performing his word. We just haven't seen it lately. We just haven't seen the big performances of God, although I, I certainly could argue that we have. We just yes. don't. People just don't see it or perceive it. I, I see the big activity of God in the world, like the fact that the world is getting worse and worse, just like he said it's going to, and that governments are all leaning toward one-world governments, just like God said it was going to. And, and we're seeing hurricanes and earthquakes and famines, pestilences, and they're increasing in number. God is active. People just don't perceive it. But people generally, because they don't perceive it, because they don't get it, because they haven't seen, you know, when was the last time somebody grew a leg or that a blind guy could see again? Or when was the last time I saw a good solid sign? Well, then God's not there. Well, then God's not active. And this Christianity thing is a crutch for you weak-minded people who need something you can lean on to get through this life. That's the excuses people make for why it is that God hasn't acted lately. They think, well, if he hasn't, well, then he's not going to. And I can get away with anything. I'm not going to be judged because he doesn't judge. So it happened back there in Israel. It's happening to this very day. People don't understand that when God speaks, whatever word he speaks will be performed, and that's God speaking. When I speak, whatever I speak will be performed. It will no longer be delayed. For in your days, O rebellious house, I shall speak the word and perform it, declares the Lord God. Verse 26, furthermore, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, behold, the house of Israel is saying, the vision that he sees is for many years from now, and he prophesies of times far off. In other words, they hear what Jeremiah is saying. They hear what Ezekiel is saying. But they think, you know, it's a long time from now. It, it might happen someday, but it's not going to happen in our lifetime. We don't have to worry about it. Behold, this, the house of Israel is saying, the vision that he sees is for many years from now, and he prophesies of times far off. Therefore, say to them, thus says the Lord God, none of my words will be delayed any longer Whatever word I speak will be performed, declares the Lord. And sure enough, Jerusalem goes into captivity and is taken into Babylon. And Zedekiah is captured and the prince is blinded and he never sees Babylon, though he dies there. All of that happens in this time space where Ezekiel's prophesying it. 
So God is finally performing it. In chapter 13, God is going to start railing against false prophets. Just like he said, who are these people? What, what are these things you're saying? Why do you not believe the word of God? Now he's going to start talking about the false prophets, the false diviners, and he's going to have some pretty rough things to say to them, which I wish more people today would still listen to because God doesn't like it when people claim to speak for him if he hasn't actually done the speaking because whatever God says happens. Got it? And that means, by the way, that he is coming back. He said so. And that means that we do have the promise of eternal life, because he said so. That means that there is going to be a kingdom, and Israel's going to be restored. David's greater son is going to rule at Jerusalem, because he said so. So the same way that God is demonstrating that he is faithful to his word in the way that he is punishing Israel... He also, with the punishment, repeatedly, over and over, promises restoration to Israel. And so if he did half of it, the punishment part, then he's going to do the restoration part. It's all the same God speaking. And it's all the same God who's acting. And don't fall into the trap of saying, well, he hasn't done it yet, so I guess he's not going to. And there are a whole lot of people, if I may say, a whole lot of people who theologically have fallen into that trap and have ended up saying, well, God hasn't restored Israel, so he must be done with them. And yet God keeps saying, look, just because I haven't done it yet doesn't mean I'm not going to do it. And I have said I'm going to do it over and over and over again. And whatever I declare, I'm going to do. And he's proven it through history that he does what he declares. Does that all make sense? Yes, sir. So we believe what we believe about man's depravity and God's absolute sovereignty and God needing to enlighten people for them to understand it because that's what he said. That's why we believe it. And we believe in a future for Israel because that's what he said. So we believe it. Make sense? Yes. All right. And we think the times of the Gentiles is drawing to a close. I sure hope it is. Because this is one weary Gentile. So. All righty. Say goodbye to the internet congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.